Welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we meet a different scientist and find out what a life and career in science is like behind the scenes. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm joined by criminologist and forensic scientist Glenn Porter. Welcome to the podcast, Glenn. Thanks, James. Now, I'm thinking criminology, I'm thinking forensics. I feel like I should get a couple of housekeeping questions out of the way. As a forensic scientist, how many pairs of aviator sunglasses do you have on hand at any one time to you know, stare off intensely into the distance and say something meaningful about a case? <laughs> That's very interesting. <laughs> and, and designer clothes, of course, yes. uh, <laughs> thanks to the television uh, popular uh, popular culture. Um, it, it, when I taught uh, forensic science, uh, one of the one of the realities for some of the students was that it's not so glamorous like that. Yes. Uh, there's not designer clothes. In actual fact, it's complete opposite. Where you wear these white uh, lint-free suits to get to, to process the scene. So it's the it's the antithesis of designer clothes and <laughs> looking good actually. <laughs> Uh, what about your your quirky savant type characters? Any psychic mediums that you bring onto crime scenes to divine what happened? Those those type of characters do they play out in real life? Oh, hey, that's TV, isn't it? That's 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 <laughs> not real life. But it, it's it's funny how uh, that impacts uh, on um, the perception of uh, what I do. I guess uh, having recently been interviewed by the ABC. Um, I, I was getting prepared for the interview, or waiting to to get onto the onto the radio, and I could hear the the you know um, uh, the the music behind the theme song behind uh, CSI <laughs> coming up as <laughs> as I was being introduced, and yeah. just, you just shake and go, no, it's not about that. <laughs> so com- right from the start, it's a com- it's 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 a complete misrepresentation of what forensic science is. It's good. That's why I wanted to get this stuff out of the way early, <laughs> so mm. we can move on. I mean, is it to the point where you can you even watch these shows, or is it too much of an eye roll? Oh no, for no, you. no. Any plenty of people that um, work in the police or have have worked in the police just don't watch cop shows. Um, yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure why that is. I don't think it's because it's not based on reality. I just, I just think it's something about the cop shows that um, people that have had police backgrounds don't want to engage in. I'm not quite sure why that is, but it, that's a fact of life. Mm. But it's so prevalent in the media and in society. Does this affect what now happens within courtrooms or for your perspective in classrooms now? Yeah, there was some indication when a lot of forensic science sub uh, courses were being established that it was it was popularizing the the television shows into science. And I guess I guess there's a certain element of that um, that's true in the sense that it it popularizes it in the sense it brings it to attention to some people but cop shows and medical shows and lawyer shows have been around for quite a long while when CSI first started off what 10 uh, over 10 years or 15 years ago or so maybe even longer um, it I guess it was a new genre of cop show but it, it, it brought the attention to forensic science uh, it brought it as you mentioned in a glamorous way but but I don't I don't I don't really think that that people go to university because of a TV show. To be mm. honest, I, I think there's I think the decision making process in regards to where you want to lead your career, it might in it might spark some interest or spark some attention. But I don't think that you know the, the end result of making a full decision to to base your career around a, a television show is actually re- real. What about people working within? 
law or law enforcement, are, are they often swayed or, or do they get the wrong ideas yeah, from we did these shows? S- we did see that early on um, with the, you know, what, what's been termed now the CSI effect and there's lots of different types of CSI effects but one of the, one of the effects is uh, investigators, police coming to forensic services and asking for a particular a particular um, anal- analysis that they saw on TV. <laughs> uh, but I, I have heard of a few incidents like that, and certainly lawyers uh, get the wrong idea of um, what they can do in the in the courtroom with forensic science. But um, pretty much the research has indicated that the CSI effect is it, it was a it was a term that was established through the media. Um, and it, it, the research has indicated that there's no real CSI effect. It doesn't really have an impact on the decision-making from the jury and so forth. It, 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 there, there are lots of different versions of it. Um, basically, the CSI effect is suggesting that there is some influence on the scientific evidence that's been presented, some higher weighting of the scientific evidence to persuade the jury to make one sort of particular decision. But the prosecution side say that that if they're prosecuting a case without scientific evidence, the CSI effect will affect their prosecution because there's a lack of scientific evidence and the jury are expecting it. And then mm. the defence complain about the CSI effect in the sense that, well, it's the, the, it's the uh, unfair weighting that was given to the scientific evidence that produced a guilty verdict. So, so both kind of camps argue that fact, but the research has indicated that it's not actually happening in the courtroom. All right, so I guess if people were going to be swayed by this kind of stuff, they would be expecting a case to come complete with all sorts of DNA evidence and fingerprints and facial recognition and everything, but the fact is that's just not the case a lot of the times. I'm not denying that that the the forensic evidence that gets brought before the court isn't isn't, uh, compelling evidence. Mm. So I'm I'm certainly supportive of that, and one of the... One of the unknown things about forensic science is that it, a lot of most of the work, most of the casework done by forensic specialists, they don't go to court, mm. um, and a lot of a lot of the work is about um, finding people not or not finding people not guilty, but but excluding people in the investigation. So forensic science isn't just about the prosecution within the court; it's about making sure that the police, when they're investigating can uh, have less impact on suspects that are actually innocent by eliminating them fairly quickly in the investigation. That the type, mm, that, that, okay. that releases resources. It, it allows the police to get on with catching the person who actually has committed the crime. Mm. There's a lot of trauma uh, associated with individuals and their families in being um, a suspect of a serious crime as well. So eliminating those people quickly is a, is a very positive aspect of the forensic science that we don't kind of see in that sort of popular culture. But it's a, it's a, it's a, critical, um, <clears throat> a critical component of it. The the other thing that um, that we find with forensic science now is the um, about fifty percent of forensic work now is done within the intelligence sphere, so it's not it's not only well forensic science was a re- reactionary type of process uh, a, a criminal event or an incident will occur forensics will go out to investigate and then produce um, a body of work. Whereas what we're seeing now, and particularly the, the Australian Federal Police have indicated now that their their body of work within forensic uh, science is 
um, 50% intelligence gathering and 50% reactionary in evidence-based um, prosecutions. So it's not it's not just a, a matter of um, being uh, reacting to a, an event that's occurred. It's about building up a, a lot of uh, intelligence around how um, crime has been committed within the community and how they might disrupt that crime. I mean, counterterrorism is kind of a key one here, whereas the police are not about catching and convicting people of, of uh, terrorist or counterterrorism events. It's really about the disruption of the crime as well, as not, not just about making arrests but disrupting and preventing the crime. That's a very important function now of modern law enforcement. Yeah, it's a bit of a shame we don't see the the preventative side of law enforcement. But I imagine this uh, effect where you might have people wanting a particular analysis from a forensic scientist might affect you a lot because that trope on TV is that you will get some CCTV footage and there will be a blurry reflection in a window and the guy standing behind the computer will say, enhance the image a thousand times and all of a sudden you'll have a perfectly rendered, uh, focused picture of someone's face. Now you do forensic imaging, so <laughs> is, is there any sliver of truth in that sort of analysis? Uh Poor quality CCTV is prob is a problem. Uh, we we you c you can't deal do much with poor quality material, and then that's any forensic evidence. If it's a if it's a smudged fingerprint or a a, a, a very faint and in undistinguishable indistinguishable uh, shoe mark or uh, any any sort of evidence, if it's not of quality, it, it makes it very difficult to get good quality evidence and accurate evidence. So poor quality imagery from CCTV, if it is poor quality, and a lot of it isn't, a lot of it's very good quality, mm -hmm. very sharp, uh, high resolution imaging now. But, but uh, if it's poor quality CCTV, it's just like any other poor quality evidence. It's not going to produce really good, good results. But we, we are seeing uh, a change now in forensic science, in the identification sciences, and it's been referred to uh, by... Uh, the former Superintendent Neville of, of Scotland Yard as the third forensics. And Martin Everson has written um, uh, a paper on this in regarding how we're, we're now incorporating facial identification as part of a forensic identification process. And the Australian Federal Police and the New South Wales Police are setting up uh, facial identification units, which is we're getting heavily involved with research in that aspect. Um, I've been training the for facial identification team down the AFP on image quality and being able to get them um, to understand what imaging is about. So they have a team of around about eight staff members now down at the Federal Police uh, specialising in facial identification. So it, it, the term third forensic comes from the first two forensics of identification based on fingerprints and then DNA and our th the third forensics, the, the more modern forensics now, is the facial identification. And that's uh, we, we're seeing that being expanded right across the globe as another new genre of forensic identification. And is this purely quantitative? My first image when you say facial identification is the kind of biometrics that our modern phones will do, where they'll actually look at proportions and things on our faces is that what we're talking about with forensics as well it becomes part of it but it, it, it but not but not really it's it's still very uh, the identification process is done by an examiner by a human mm -hmm. 
um, but it, but it's closely as associated with it. I mean, one of the things that we do have now is um, databases of faces. So through our mm -hmm. driver's license, through our um, passports, there are also now biometric databases of, of our facial features. And while that might be used as part of a search, uh, the, searching the database to find an unknown person, the actual identification is done on a more... Uh, quantitative in to, to, to some degree, um, but, but also qualitative assessment by an examiner. But the, certainly the facial recognition software and so forth is really, is really a part of that. But the facial identification software is called facial recognition, not identification. Right. So the humans kind of take it to that next level. But it's a great uh, resource to do searching and so forth. So... Um, one of the things where I see faces, face identification became, going to become more predominant, but prominent in the way we identify people. But it's, but it's high, a bit of a, a sort of a, a, a human rights issue is that we're moving to databases. If, if the law enforcement had access to, to facial databases like our driver's license and our passports, well, we're moving from a database of fingerprints and DNA that are of only convicted people to now 99% uh, of the adult population. Anyone mm -hmm. with a driver's license and anyone with a passport is on that database. So there is quite a shift in the social issues around how police, uh, law enforcement agencies might access that data. Uh, and there is a bill... Um, before Parliament at the moment around that that hasn't got through yet, so we might we we might see more of a shift towards facial identification purely as a because police have more access to a greater a greater uh, quality da database. So I'm not sure how that's going to go, but it, it, from a forensic criminology perspective, that's a very interesting thing to kind of keep track on. So just to be clear, though, our photos on our driver's licenses are they currently part of some database or yeah okay yeah new south wales um roads and transport authority um have been collecting biometric database on our driver's licenses for at least 15 years now but there's no real fear we you know we hear about phones reading our faces when we're not looking talking about you know social justice and, and human rights issues is any of that uh pressing fear that we should be worried about uh, I, the answer is I don't know. Uh, mm. We need more research in that space, I think. But um, the accessibility of more data of, of of the citizens going from convicted people to now just about every citizen is I don't I, I don't think it's something to worry about, but it's something to certainly be um, focus on and and to examine. I mentioned the availability of cameras and technology now are making forensic imaging a much much bigger field. Than it was, like you said, you know, the quality of CCTV footage is going to be increasing a lot. But then also, everyone's carrying around little video cameras in their pockets. Is that changing what you do? Yeah, yeah certainly. The, the amount of images that we consume as a society today is never, we've never had. I mean, imaging is fairly new. It's, it's less than 200 years old. But... The, the amount of the volume of imaging that we now consume as a society is just astronomical. Um, we don't, we don't ca 
we carry cameras around with us all the time because we have a phone and there's CCTV and, and so forth. So it, it's it's unprecedented and um, unprecedented and we don't really know how to deal with it from a law enforcement and a society and how we process that kind of information. It's, it, it can be seen as an invasion of our privacy, I guess, but it can also be a very valuable resource for um, investigation and, and certainly around understanding and knowing the facts around the crime but that can also be distorted i mean it's imaging is a a friend and a foe at the same time it can impart very useful information to for us to understand about facts but it can also impart the wrong information Mm. and it's about the interpretation of that information and that's something that we're not very good at at the moment yeah i imagine that Increases in technology would make this information more readily available, but not necessarily make you glean something from an image that you couldn't otherwise, right? Yeah, I guess. And we're seeing it, we're also seeing it in forensic science practices in its own right too. In crime scene, in crime scene uh, investigation, for example, where we would have uh, imaging technology like large format cameras, which take sheet film, not roll film, but sheet film, and the average um, amount of images taken at a major scene using large format cameras was between six and um, 12 images. When roll film came, came around in the 70s and 80s and 90s, we then saw that number of I- images being taken at crime scenes extend to 36 up to 72 images. But now with digital photography, we're seeing uh, 200 to 800 images shot at a major crime scene, mm-hmm. which is just... So how do you process that? How, does, uh, how do you develop a visual narrative? I mean, one of the functions of crime scene investigation is bringing the scene to the court visually. That's one of the, one of the aspects of crime scene investigation. It's a, it's a visual narrative that we're trying to produce when we're, re- when we're recording the scene. That uh, so, what happens to that narrative when it becomes uh, from twelve photos to eight hundred photos? How mm. how is that narrative uh, constructed? Is it constructed in a logical and uh, a way that you can uh, obtain factual information from it, or is it just such a flood of in- images that it just doesn't make sense? It's just um, it, it's words on a page, but not sentences in, mm. in the structure. So whether so whether that uh, whether the technology is actually um, not uh, improving our communication skills within bringing that concept of bringing the scene to the court uh, is a matter of um, us trying to sort of analyse it. But I suspect um, that we're doing a, a a less perfect job in bringing that information to the court through imagery than what we were doing uh, 20 years ago. Yeah, I imagine that more information could just as easily misdirect as direct, really. And you actually worked as a photographer with the Australian Federal Police. Was that going out and going to crime scenes and recording things? I was I was positioned in Sydney uh, headquarters, and most of my job was uh, laboratory based. It was in the okay. in the headquarters. Uh, occasionally, I went out to crime scenes. I think one of the most interesting one was in a operating theatre in the one of the Sydney hospitals, where w- the surgeons were extracting um, 
uh, cocaine pellets out of the uh, lower bowel of the person that just brought them into the country. So it, I, I have seen quite a, a few different types of, <laughs> of, of, of crime scenes and, uh, and areas, autopsies, going to autopsies and so forth and getting photographing autopsies and uh, photographing evidence coming from autopsies. It is uh, interesting, but not mainstream uh, for the federal police, uh, mm-hmm. particularly in a, from a national policing perspective. Am I right in guessing that most days was pretty mundane photos? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Getting things ready for court was my yeah. most, mostly my function and producing photo identification boards for detectives to get IDs from. Okay, but did you play a role in putting together that narrative you were talking about? Uh, not not so much, no. Um, my specialisation really is in forensic uh, optical enhancement and enhancement of evidence through uh, scientific imaging. So my, my background is more towards a scientific um, uh, imaging sense rather than a visual narrative or, f- or documentation form. When you say optical enhancement of images, what do you mean by that? So that that means that that, that means um, a faint blood print um, on a uh, at, at, it could be at a scene or on a particular item. We can enhance it with chemicals. We can chemically mm-hmm. treat it and use special type of monochromatic lighting so that that light print with a lot of detail will come up and be able to be visualized and examined by where. Um, impression expert. So it's it, optical enhancement means using. Um, science, uh, scientific imaging, but usually uh, in a combination of chemical treatment of, um, particularly in blood, we, we, we treat blood a lot with chemi- with chemicals, um, and then making it more visual so that the, uh, the forensic analysis can take can take place. So in, in ha- we do a lot of enhancement in, it's not manipulation, it's not sort of Photoshop manipulation as we see, you know, with normal sort of photography. Uh, it's about using uh, scientific photography techniques in a forensic context to actually better visualise evidence so we can examine it. And a lot of that evidence is even latent. So fingerprints, for example, uh, on a piece of paper, you can't see the fingerprints, but you treat it with a chemical substance called an inhydrin, and that reacts to the, the amino acids in the paper and then produces a print on the paper. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 uh, then we then we might have other methods uh, that we use photoluminescence techniques so we can get blood or fingerprints or shoe prints to actually fluoresce so we can see it against a very busy background and mm-hmm. so it isolates the evidence so we don't so we can actually see what we want to see. All right, so this is you know, hands-on complex photography techniques really. I mean, if again, if the CSI effect has taught me anything, it's that a blacklight will show you everything, right? You can piece together an entire crime scene just for the blacklight, but it sounds a lot more complex than that. Yeah, well, the use of luminol in CSI TV shows is, is quite prevalent where mm. you spray chemistry and you see it come up with that blue photoluminescence yeah. um, glow. And that's 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 quite re- real. We, we do use that tool in the, in the field, but... It's uh, not that it doesn't quite work how the TV portrays it. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, again, you're not changing anything about that piece of evidence, just making it visual in a different way. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. That's that. That's the enhancement. Yeah, not changing it, but making it more visible. Mm-hmm. 
And when you're not at work, you're also a photographer as a hobby. So yes, it, it's reading up on some of your stuff. It sounds like tweaking optics and getting all sorts of weird effects visually is is your thing. Yeah, I've got a couple of projects I'm working on at the moment. Um, some of my, my research in imaging is looking at the infrared spectrum and looking at how we um, image things. Uh, uh, one of the papers I presented a couple of years ago was detecting blood stains under painted surfaces using infrared reflective photography. So when um, hiding crime scene, hiding evidence is obviously some something of interest to people who mm. commit crimes and violent crimes that often produce blood. Blood is a very difficult substance to sort of clean up. Mm. So there have been different ways we've come across where people try to conceal the crime. Painting over one of the surfaces is, is one of those and we've come up where we found that infrared photography under certain uh, lights, the white the, I hope I'm not giving anything away to the potential criminal, but, <laughs> but give some tips. <laughs> the the white the paint is probably the most effective. But when you go for a darker color, thinking that because blood dries dark, uh, that a darker color would conceal more, it actually doesn't. It's uh, far more transparent in infrared than vis light. So, so the so if you're going to uh, want to cover up blood, white is the uh, is, is is usually <laughs> material in white. Uh, covers absorbs infrared doesn't transmit infrared right. but a lot of the darker um, pigments and colors that they use in paint uh, transmits blood pretty pretty easily so blood reflects in the infrared and so you want to cover it up with something that also reflects uh, infrared is that right uh, not quite uh, you're on the you're on the right thinking so if you've got a particularly a war that's painted white that 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 white will um, uh, it will reflect, but um, you've got the blood. The blood actually absorbs inf infrared, okay. so it makes the blood go darker. Mm -hmm. um, and the and the the uh, the paint that's over the blood becomes translucent, or because the light transmits through it. Mm -hmm. so, so there's basically two, three thing, uh, four things that can happen when we irradiate a specimen with light or radiation, like infrared or ultraviolet radiation. And that is it will um, reflect and become lighter. It will absorb and go darker. It will transmit and become transparent or it will become fluorescent. Mm -hmm. So they're the kind of four parameters that we kind of play with around with optical enhancement. We either get one to do one thing. So, so in, the, in, the, in the case of the blood, it's absorbing the, the, the infrared, so it's going darker. The infrared's being reflected off the wall, so the wall's lighter, and the paint that's covering over the, over the blood is getting transmitted through it, so it becomes translucent or, um, or, or clear. This... Uh, expertise in optics and photography did it start with photography or did it start with forensics i started with photography for me um i was studying photography at the time and um was uh, got a job when we working with the federal police um and then, then ever since then it's forensic photography's just been uh, an absolute passion uh, it's it's interesting for me in the sense that it un it uses a lot of scientific uh, understanding and methods to be able to produce uh, work that's suitable for forensic examination. So it's 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 very challenging. Challenging. It's not like your regular point and shoot crime scene visual narratives that we talked about before is really about 
tell, are telling a story with the, with with a camera and with with photos with with images, but the the forensic photography is about getting the maximum uh, ability of the maximum evidence out of the items that you have, and it's usually around using a lot of science based imaging. Mm-hmm. So getting a job doing forensic imaging was that. Uh, intended was that a surprise there's not a lot of us around uh no it wasn't intended that way at all i I started off as a creative photographer and professional photography working in the um the commercial uh area commercial advertising photography is kind of where i started and uh moved over into into forensics uh by accident i guess um but the scientific imaging really uh, really sparked a big interest in me and I've been pursuing that ever since. Yeah, were you then prepared for all the intense images you would end up having to see on the job? Uh, I haven't seen a, a lot of horrible experiences, certainly not as many as my crime scene colleagues that go out to violent crimes all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, 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 I'm okay, but, but it is a very difficult job. It's a very stressful job and it's a job that uh, does does take a, a, a toll on your psychological well-being mm. it's a uh, people underestimate that but it is a very psychologically wearing uh, a, a job um, you do see some very horrible things and unpleasant um, things that sometimes are hard to uh, forget and I guess it doesn't end there either particularly when you then have to go on and give some sort of expert witness or testimony how do you handle those situations making sure that it's only the evidence that's being put out there and presented as opposed to your personal perspective on things? I, I kind of enjoy court. Um, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not sure why, because most, most of my police colleagues don't like that experience of court. Mm. Uh, I guess as an expert witness, you do get some level of respect in the court as opposed to a regular police officer who, uh, who, who doesn't get treated badly, but... Um, there's, I guess, there's a, a higher kind of level of independence when you become an expert, uh, an expert witness. Mm. There, there appears to be a little more independence, whereas police seem to be just for the prosecution. I guess, I guess that could be it. Um, but I, I, f- I find court, it's nerve wracking. If you're not nervous before you give, um, before you give evidence, um, you're probably too confident. <laughs> but and you're probably going to make a mistake, but um, but having said that, I, I find the process quite enjoyable. There's a lot of respect. I love the, I love the um, the aspect of court in the sense that it's the the language and the the tradition and all that of court, and it's a very serious place. I mean, we don't have a lot of exposure to very serious stuff in our lives, but certainly courts one of those one of those times where it's it, the consequences. Uh, for the accused and for the victims and their families is um, quite intense. Mm. And even just the science side of it itself, it'll be pretty complex in terms of what actually counts as evidence as opposed to logical deductive reasoning. How is that divided up and do you purely provide evidence whereas logic's done by other people? How does that work? Well, this is this is what I... I approach uh, from a forensic criminology perspective and I talk to my current students uh, about this in forensic um, in forensic science and the, the criminal justice system subject where um, these logic reasoning paradigms are, are, they don't match which is quite odd in the sense that 
deductive reasoning is kind of the, 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 the logic reasoning behind the scientific method. It's about a deductive, deductive reasoning logic. But the legal system is more inductive. There's a, it's an adversarial system. It's about not so much about... It's about getting to the truth. I don't, uh, I don't deny that. There's a lot of scepticism around what that means, uh, adversarial systems and that it's about who can produce the best argument as opposed to who can get to the truth. Okay. I don't kind of I don't t- kind of agree with that that skepticism, but it is an inductive inductive reasoning, uh, the legal system. But so you've got deductive reasoning as a, as as your basis of your scientific method. Then you've got inductive reasoning forum, which is the courtroom. But then what do we do in forensic science? We do abductive reasoning, which is a kind of a n- another one altogether, which is um, ab- uh, adapting uh, previous knowledges in science and adapting it to forensic investigation. So you have this sort of reasoning paradigm difference between deductive inductive and abductive reasoning all playing together in the in in the in the court in the courtroom so mm. it's a, an in- interesting paradigm i don't know what sort of impact it has but it might it might explain some of the complexities we have in forensic science how much of it is to do with the fact that it is a very uh, emotionally heightened place the courtroom that Maybe logical arguments just seem very dull and unconvincing. Um, or am I relying too much on you know television portrayals again? Yeah, uh, yeah you might be, James. I, 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 there has been um, a focus on fr- the reliability of forensic science over the last uh, ten years, uh, or going back a little bit more than ten years. The NAS report. National Academy of Sciences in the US produced a report in 2008 which was quite damning about the reliability of forensic science uh, the, or, the, or the, the, the practice of forensic science. And then more recently the PCAST which, uh, report in 2016, again a US-based report, uh, which is a report on, on forensic science reliability for President Obama. Um, PCAST is the President Committee Academy of Science and Technology. I think I think that's what it stands for. And they also these were very hard edge, hardcore scientists that evaluated what forensic science was, and found and, and were quite were quite critical of a lot of components of it. So we we haven't had um, we haven't had a really good positive time with the two major those reviews, the NAS report and the PCAST report. But nevertheless, I think we're we have a very important role to play in in the criminal justice system, and uh, and to, and and for and and for us to get um, you know justice done for victims as well. I think I think forensic science has an important area to play. I, th- I think what's what's confusing is those logic reasonings that I mentioned before. Forensic science might need to be see, seen as not as a hard science like chemistry and biology and so forth, while it adapts from it. It may not be the same. Um, the, one of the challenges we have in forensic, forensic evidence is that when you do normal science experiments, you would have a sample size X amount, mm-hmm. so that um, you can look at your standard error and you can then, you know, calculate through statistics on on the the importance of the findings. But you, 
in forensic science, your N value, your population value might be one. Mm. Now, in science, we don't do one experiment and no. come up with the conclusions. <laughs> but forensic science is asked to do that on more than one occasion and quite regularly. So how, 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 do, you, how do you deal with that from a, from a deductive reasoning paradigm? You can't. So you have to rely on what we already know in science to then make those sort of conclusions. So it's, so it's a tricky situation. Yeah. I mean, how much time then do you have to spend not only saying this is the evidence we have, but this is the very complex procedure that we use to get to that information and does that sort of hinder the ability to get the evidence across? Getting that, getting the evidence across is very difficult and there, there's been a bit of research around how we can express the findings. Um, being able to, do we express them in scientific terms like DNA does, you know, one in 20 million chance that it's from the same source? Mm. So uh, those numbers don't really compute to uh, most people. Well, what does one in 20 million mean? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, wh what does one in 10 billion mean? You know, what, what sort of numbers can we uh, consume and understand? But also, uh, some of the some of the evidence is given in around uh, in a confidence level, so it might be likely, highly highly likely, uh, it might be a match. So the expressions that we use, um, we we don't really know what the right expressions are. Uh, some evidence has indicated, like a match for Schumach uh, evidence, for example, is the highest kind of confidence level. It's a match. It's it's yep. from the same source, but. When um, a, 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 a fairly recent um, a study looked at uh, asking judges to rank what about five expressions were, I think they were uh, match, highly likely, likely, uh, unlikely, and exclusion, um, rank at, at, the, at, the, at the highest level. Uh, the, the judges that were, were tested, the potential jurors that were tested, and the forensic scientists or rank them differently. So, yeah. so uh, the, the the language and the findings is the way we express our findings is something we're 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 not dealing with very well. Yeah, when I think about the data sets that I use, we always talk about measurements of uncertainty and or statistical uncertainty. Imagine using a word like uncertain would just be a terrible idea <laughs> in that but, context. And in and in an adversarial system, the rule of law, you know, we we have to our, our level of proof for criminal codes is proved beyond reasonable doubt. So, mm. so just because a, a a forensic expert not has doubt, but is, it might be inconclusive. Sorry, that wasn't that was the other um, mm. one of the other categories. It, there might not be enough evidence to say it is a match, but it's not enough evidence to exclude it. Yeah. So that concept of inconclusive and what does that mean as a as, as a form of evidence is, is 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 a bit unknown at the moment. And as a scientist, nothing's ever conclusive, right? Well, well absolutely. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's right. Uh, it's 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 a it's a knowledge base that we're constantly learning and learning new things. Mm -hmm. and, and and that's something that we we have to put into context, particularly <clears throat> when we look at um, uh, wrongful convictions and uh, cases from 30 years ago that were that were, were were wrongful convictions, and they're terrible indictments to the to the criminal justice system, and and so unjust to not only the victims and their family, but the people that have spent 20, 30 years in jail unjustly. But the 
the the thing that you've got to put in context is the knowledge that we knew back then. <laughs> mm. uh, that's not making an excuse for forensic science, but there obviously there's a lot of forensic science that we're not quite sure about uh, that we're doing now that we might have a different opinion in 20 or 30 years' time. And how does forensic science differ or, or go side by side with criminology? So... so um, there's an interesting, there's an interesting uh, new sort of discipline. Criminology is, on, on the very basic, basic sort of definition of criminology, it's, it's a really a study of deviance um, and criminal kind of uh, criminality. But forensic criminology is a new sort of branch coming out that we're seeing coming out of uh, criminology. And it, it incorporates forensic science, uh, the concepts of forensic science. It also incorporates things like the uh, crime and the, the, criminal, the criminals themselves and the social and the socioeconomic situations around, uh, the re- maybe the reasons why crime is committed. But then it also looks at um, how uh, the forensic uh, can, how um, a crime is investigated and some of the legal issues around it. One of the one of the things that we've that, that we've seen in the the, the U.S. C- uh, courts is um, judges trying to build frameworks around how they can understand and accept forensic evidence as around their reliability, and there and and we've had a, a system which well the U.S. Uh, Supreme Court developed a system called the Dalbert Dalbert standard, Dalbert Dalbert depends where you come from how you pronounce it. But the Dow-Bear standard is about, uh, there's five principles around the Dow-Bear standard and it's a m- attempt to develop a framework on whether courts can accept the evidence or not accept the evidence. Because the other uh, interesting thing about forensic science, it's not the way we deal with it here in, in, in Australia and, and overseas, a lot of av- other adversarial systems, is that it's not about it's not tested or accepted on its level of reliability, but admissibility. And admissibility is a different set of standards than, than, um, than, than reliability. Admissibility is about a legal framework on how that evidence may have been obtained. Mm-hmm. But uh, reliability is, and, and validation is where we're sort of wanting to look at it from a scientific perspective. Mm-hmm. So, so reliability doesn't kind of compute in the, in, in the, in the judiciary it's more about a missability around the rules of evidence rather than the reliability of the science. And you're here at the University of New England heading up the new Centre for Rural Criminology. What makes rural criminology different from any other, I don't know, urban crimes? What would you call it? Yeah, well, yeah. I guess I, that's one of the main areas that we, one of the main reasons why we've set this centre up is that there, there are that there, there are situations around criminality uh, and and uh, and and events that uh, are specific to the urban. Uh, they're different to the uh, from the rural to the urban. And one of one of the one of the reasons why we set this up is to sort of make those comparisons. But there are also other you know social and criminological um, issues that we we want to get a, a handle of and understand much better that deal specifically with rural aspects. I guess some examples are uh, trespassing, um, illegal hunting, 
stock theft. You don't get a lot of sort of stock theft in Pitt Street. So, <laughs> you know, so um, the New South Wales Police, uh, headed by uh, Cameron Whiteside, Detective Inspector Cameron Whiteside, he is leading up a new, a fairly new but reinvigorated uh, rural crime unit, and we're working very closely with them, uh, where they deal and engage with uh, with farmers and people living in the rural area. So New South Wales Police and Victoria Police as well have recognised that there is a need for special detectives that have a different sort of skill set that can actually investigate crimes that are specific to rural regions. Fire setting is, a, is, a, is another kind of example. Most bushfires that occur, we're seeing some terrible bushfires and some people being arrested just at the moment in regards to fire setting of those those fire those bushfires but but bushfires are predominantly a rural issue as well because it's in the rural environment so it changes the criminology a lot does it actually affect what you do as a forensic scientist do we need to adapt things to you know, the different landscape that's a good question i mean one of the areas that we're wanting to research is, you know, what sort of uh, capacity does rural forensic science have? You obviously can't have specialists in every rural town. That's just mm. not practical. And when it when it when when it, when it becomes a a major scene, a, a homicide, or a fairly major scene, we can import people into those sites to, uh, that have that specialty that you need. But but whether our Forensic science practitioners in the rural areas need to be more multi-skilled. What access do they have to resources and equipment, uh, as our urban and city colleagues do? Uh, that's a very interesting question, and one that we want we want to analyse. So it sounds like your run-of-the-mill challenges for regional communities in terms of lack of infrastructure and people power are no different in this field. Off, off, off sure. I, th I think it also might extend around the welfare of the, particularly the crime scene investigators too, uh, how isolated they might be without being around a larger team and, and the distance they have to travel, enormous distances because of the region. Mm -hmm. and if people want to find out more about the work that you do in this Centre for Rural Criminology, they can jump online and look for it there? Yes, we have a, we're on the UNE website. Uh, just uh, type in um, or Google rural, um, rural Criminology, Centre for Rural Criminology, and it should all be there. And if people are interested in your uh, creative photography, creative sides, any, uh, any Flickr pages, anything shared out there in the public? No, I'm, I'm sort of in a covert operation regarding my artistic <laughs> stuff at the moment, but um, I have a, an exhibition coming up hopefully early next year, so I'm working towards that. At the All moment. right. Can, can we hear anything about that? Um, it, it, it actually incorporates it's a, an artistic uh, body of work that looks at using some of the scientific methods that we use in um, forensic investigation, forensic imaging, but used in a creative sense. So it's using uh, techniques like uh, uh, double refraction or what we call cross-processing uh, to create biofringent effects to everyday items and plastics. It's looking at macro, it's looking at infrared, it's looking at ultraviolet radiation photography. So it's looking, it's sort of using the tools that I use in um, forensic science, but photographing them in a creative way of everyday items. Not evidence, but items that <laughs> they can look visually pleasing and aesthetically pleasing as opposed to um, looking at it from an evidential perspective. Yeah. But it's using the same type of imaging techniques. 
Do you know where this exhibits or exhibition is going to be? Uh, I don't have um, a confirmation yet, but it's actually overseas. It's uh, it's in a it's in a country. Um, it's in China, actually, mm-hmm. uh, in Shenzhen, China. Uh, I've got a, a gallery that wants to exhibit it there, and once I once I have that exhibition, I'll look for other galleries in Australia as well. All right. Well, keep in touch and let us know when it's all happening. We'll definitely share it out when it's all out there. Thanks, James. No worries. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you guys for listening too. You can check us out online at insituscience.com or on social media at insituscience. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.